Season 6 of the CMO Suite is presented by Bid for Media. Bid for Media is the leader in providing biddable media solutions across all forms of media, including traditional, digital, social, experiential, and more. It's like eBay for media. Choices from radio and TV advertising to OTT, trade desk, display advertising, influencer marketing, and more. No sign-up fees, no boring training, no bullshit. Visit them at bidformedia.com. Season 6 of the CMO Suite is also sponsored in part by Uconnects. Uconnects provides managed services in the programmatic space for brands and agencies across the U.S. and internationally. It uniquely provides true transparency in the programmatic space by sharing how much of each campaign actually goes to publishers, platform, and how much is profit. If you are looking to better understand true working dollars or are just looking for an audit of your existing digital partnerships, visit them at uconnects.com. That's Y-O-U-C-O-N-N-E-X.com. And Winmo. Winmo is one of the leading sales prospecting tools that delivers the information you need to identify opportunities and close more deals with advertisers and agencies. Search brands, agencies, or contacts and leverage Winmo's smart filters to pare down thousands of prospects based on annual revenue, job title, locations, mobile occurrence, planning periods, and more. Visit them today at winmo.com. And finally, No Kid Hungry. With Season 6, we'll be completing our 100th episode of the CMO Suite, and we're proud to announce we'll be compiling highlights of our previous guests for a book called CMO Suites, Recipes for Success, with proceeds to benefit the No Kid Hungry organization. Help feed hungry kids by donating today at nokidhungry.org. And don't forget to visit Marketing Cast to catch any previous seasons you might have missed of the CMO Suite or to check out other amazing podcasts in the industry. Once again, that's marketingcasts.com. Now, let's start the show. You're in the CMO Suite, the podcast for marketers who want to be in the know, presented by Connectivity Holdings. You are listening to the CMO Suite. This is your host, Sean Halter. As a reminder, this season of the CMO Suite is brought to you in part by Bid for Media. Bid for Media provides biddable media for the masses. This is your host, as I mentioned, Sean Halter. I'm on with my guest today. She's the Chief Marketing Officer of Party City. It's Julie Rum. How are you, Julie? I'm very well, thanks. And yourself? I'm great, thank you. I don't, uh, you know, if you're watching at home, we, we, we do this all kind of via podcast, but I'm, I have a home studio now. I used to record in uh, New York and Los Angeles, and now everything gets done from home. But I'm actually kind of under my steps, and my dog sometimes, when I'm recording these episodes, comes either running up and down the steps trying to capture my attention, or will occasionally drop a ball or a toy or something. So I love the stairs. I like the look of the stairs above you. They're cool, and I like to see the dogs. That's actually... That's awesome. It's, it's, I, have, I love my dog person. So <laughs> it is something upon occasion. And uh, I was telling somebody the other day, we're going to jump into all the fun stuff that you guys get to listen to. But I was telling somebody the other day, again, just working from home is interesting for any of us. I was always somebody who loved having an office. And anytime we'd have somebody kind of come and interview with us, I'd be like, you have to come here. And you'd get all these great millennials. And they'd be like, well, can I work from home two days a week? I'm like, no, the office is here. And of course, now COVID has changed all of that. For all of us, my dog, though, if my dog is not getting enough attention on a Zoom sometimes, I usually sit in a different place, but she'll literally come behind my chair and try to grab my attention. Kids, kids, what are you going to do with them? Awesome. Uh, speaking of kids, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Chicago or did you grow up out west or where did you grow up? Yeah, it's a complicated question for me. I will summarize by saying I currently live in Connecticut, right outside of New York City. This is my 12th state, but I've lived in twice as many cities. I started off life in Wisconsin. My Actually, I was the fifth generation, I think, to be born in the same town in Wisconsin, both sides of the family. So now I'm certainly nomadic, lots of different places. I've lived on both coasts. I've lived as far south as Texas, as far north as well, kind of all the northern ones, Minneapolis, Wisconsin, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan. I've done all those. Lots of in the middle. 
but I have uh, lived out here in Connecticut for almost 10 years, and this is the longest I've ever lived anywhere. You know, that Wisconsin almost came out for a moment there. You're like, and I lived in Wisconsin. I mean, it almost kind of snuck in there. <laughs> it doesn't really anymore. I have, I because it's been so long since I've lived there, but it used to be, I had a very thick, well, actually because of Wisconsin and then Minnesota. Minnesota has very, they have very thick. And so when we left there, it, we left a lot of a lot of places, but we left Minnesota and went to Cincinnati the summer before my freshman year in high school. And Cincinnati, as you probably know, is right on the border of Kentucky. It's right on the river, right on the border of Kentucky. In Cincinnati, they've got a lot of weird like isms and things that they say, but they've got a little touch of a twang and not super strong. It's pretty mi- mi- middle of the road. But when I went, I was super Northern and my best friend, she's still one of my very best friends. She used to say, we'd be like do sleepovers and she'd sit at night and her favorite phrase was Jack sat on a stack of tacks. And she used to make me say it, it would be Jack sat on a, I can't, I don't even know if I can do the Minnesota thing justice, but I would be like, yeah, it was like the most painful thing to try to say. So yes, I have, um, I feel like I'm pretty middle of the road, but every now and then I feel like I sound like a New Yorker because I've got a lot of Brooklyn people that I work with. Yeah. <laughs> They've got an accent too. It probably comes out when you're angry. It probably just comes out when you're angry, Julie. That's when the Brooklyn comes out in you. I actually grew up in Cincinnati. I lived in Chicago for a little bit, but I grew up uh, in uh, in North College Hill and then uh, in Turpin Hills. And so I spent most of my life in Cincinnati. Literally the day I graduated from high school, I said to my dad, please come get me. I want to come to Florida. I'm, I'm, I'm all done with Cincinnati. I'm all done with it. And so I've been in Florida for the most part ever since. And spend a little time on both coasts. So let's talk a little bit about uh, about your path. Have some of those moves been uh, a mix of some opportunities for you, uh, some opportunities for other important people in your life, or uh, is that where all of the moving kind of has come into play? Yeah, the first, so the first six states were my dad, he was in sales. And so that that's where the, those all happened. And there were multiple, sometimes we, like we were in Wisconsin a couple of times and uh, we were in Cincinnati and in Cleveland. So one state, but two big cities. So you know, there were a lot of other moves. So it was a lot of moves. But when I graduated from high school in Cincinnati, Ursuline Academy, so we can touch base on which, but that's where I graduated high school. Do I look familiar? No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Did you go to Xavier or Moeller or something? I, I might've dated a few girls. Anyway, let's, let's move on. This is not, this is not the oh, Tinder, okay. no, we won't. Not the we'll, Tinder we'll, episode. This is not we'll Tinder. Touch base after. Yes. We'll touch base after. Of course. So I, um, I went to Purdue. So I went to so another Midwest. So I left there, Indiana and I went to business school actually in Chicago, got married in Chicago. And then my jobs took us for the other. So I count Indiana and Illinois as two of mine. And then lots of other moves between Texas and California and Michigan and Arkansas in Connecticut, finally. So all my own doing. And my kids, fortunately, though, they were both born in Michigan. And so this is only their third state. And now they're both in different places because they're either out of college or in college. So it wasn't too bad for them. We always moved around a little bit, I think, as kids. And so then as I grew up as an adult, it kind of didn't really bother me. I kind of felt like home is kind of wherever you wherever you make it. The one thing I also noticed kind of in your background a little bit was you've been in tech, really, or at least it seemed like you've been an advisor in some tech areas for a long time, really kind of a long time considering tech feels like it's always kind of changing. And so was there some element of either when you grew up or as you kind of got into marketing that you just thought, geez, this side of the business seems so interesting. So it's funny when I talk to people and they look at my background and they point out things that were, you know, they just sort of felt naturally occurred in my life, not necessarily purposeful, which probably says a lot about me. I, I think I'm purposeful, but then sometimes it's like, hmm, maybe I was uh, less purposeful, but uh, so 
I have an engineering degree from Purdue. Let me start with that because that shines some light. And then my MBA from Chicago is super quantitative, as we know. And so I've got a lot of love of data within my my background anyway. And so my first job out of business school was at Ford Motor Company and lots of different roles and, you know, lots of lots of things from you know, help setting up Ford Motor Company in Korea and calling on dealers in California and selling them cars and and then launching the Ford Focus in the United States for the first time. And I did that in 1999, um, you know, with the team. But the internet, as we know, the first internet ad came out in 95. And so it was really only four years that the, you know, the web, in fact, I remember talking to dealers and they kept thinking this web thing was still like a fad. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was a weird, like, I was like, no, no, no. It's we'll, not. We'll never sell cars that way, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll never do that, of course. Yeah, well, mine was like, you're going to see grungy kids coming in. Because remember, this was the late 90s. So it was still, you know, bikes, blades. And it was like, you know, kind of the grunge look. I was like, you're going to have them come in and they're going to know more. You're going to think that they're derelicts. They're not. And they're going to know more about the vehicles than your salespeople. And they're like, no. I was like, yeah, this thing called the internet is going to... And they were like... So I re- we had to do a ton of training with the dealers to get them there. And then there's the financing of kids and stuff we had to work through. But that was a really pivotal moment. And we put a ton of money for this massive launch of the Focus for the, in the United States for the first time against digital. It was, I mean, maybe it was 10, 15% of the budget, which certainly would, you know, now, now I have 100% of my budget is digital. But then when it was really new, there wasn't, a, you know, the proliferation of ads, the usage of search, all these things were very, you know, very much uh, in their nation stage. And so it was kind of a big deal to do it. But my leaning in there was because it was marketing, but it was data. And I, and that really spoke to me from my my past. And so I loved it. So I kind kind of leaned in all the way. And then, you know, you can fast forward through my move to Chrysler and the work we did there and that kind of accelerated and then going to Walmart and then post Walmart when I when I went out and on my own and I had my own company for five years, I was doing marketing and strategy consulting for all different kinds of companies. I was very much leaning into the data and helping build strategy and making choices based on using data, even if it was in the software elements, which kind of gets to where we are today about customer experience. Like what is it and how can we use data help to help to inform that, to help be a more successful company on behalf of our customer and our employees. And so I've always kind of leaned in. And during that time where I was an entrepreneur, I was really leaning in and doing, I I had big clients, which help pay the bills. And then I had a lot of startups because this was in the mid 2000s and startups were everywhere and they were all MarTech. A lot of them, at least the ones that I was really involved in were MarTech. And I just loved it because I love sort of that continuation of what was possible. And I think that that sort of techie component led me then to the next, which is when Bill McDermott, who was then CEO of SAP, came and said, hey, would you come work for me at SAP? And I was like, you know, we we had a five-year conversation about potentially moving over there and doing that. But I, you know, my very early days were like, Bill, I don't even know what ERP stands for. Like, what is it that you're talking? Like, I don't, software, but this was, it was very early. And I was like, I just don't, MarTech was one thing, big software was another. And so it was a lot of a, com- a conversation between us. And he's like, at the end of the day, I love the fact that you're asking questions because because what I want you to do, and I can tell you the story of how it happened, is to be able to tell the customer story. And so how he finally convinced me to come over was I was flying back from a gig once from California. I was reading the USA Today called The People's Paper. And in there, in the money section, he had been interviewed. And it was the first question that the reporter asked is, so Bill, so what is it that SAP really does? And I was super excited because 
you know, USA Today's written for a seventh grade education. I thought surely even I could understand this. And so when he answered, he was like, well, you know, we're behind some of your favorite brands like Disney, Sony, Nike. And he was going through these. And I was, so I wrote him and I was like, Bill, first of all, I think it's great that you're in the broad press instead of just the vertical tech trades. I said, but I'm super embarrassed to tell you that after five years of talking to you, I was kind of giddy about this question you were asked because I thought finally I was going to get some insight about what SAP really does (laughs) that I wasn't able to like discern from the white papers and the stuff on your website. And you kind of left me hanging because I know you're behind, you know, Disney and Nike and Sony, but I still don't know why as a customer of Nike, you know, getting their shoes or visitor to Disney parks, why my experience or product or service is better because you're behind it. I said, I really think you need to be the intel inside of your industry and tell the story of your customer's customer. And he wrote me back and said, hey, will you please, this was text, would you please be my chief storyteller? And I thought he was kidding because again, we've been having a conversation for five years and he was like, no, seriously, when you get off the plane, call me, let's have a conversation. We did. He said, just come on and be a consultant for a month. I did. At the end of the month, he offered me the job to come and be the chief storyteller at SAP to do just what I had said in that little scenario. And so then I went and I was at SAP for five years before my move, next two moves. And so let's go backwards for just a second because there's a lot to unpack there and we've got a short amount of time as we know. <laughs> I want to talk a tiny bit of just about your entrepreneurial kind of foray because again, I've talked to almost 100 CMOs or VPs of marketing at this point this season will actually top 100, which is kind of cool. And thank you very much. And so for you know, many of those, like anybody else, they're kind of figuring out their way. Some are younger, some are older, some have worked only at big companies, some have worked at some startups. I think almost anybody who spends any length of time in this industry at some point just has a little itch, just a little itch of like, could I do this a little bit on my own? Or what would that look like? Or is there a safety net? Or is it big enough? Or, you know, where is my value? I feel like that's what kind of constantly comes out of this, either because you've got a little bit of imposter syndrome and you've moved up and you're not sure why, or it's just an element of you've got an idiot who's ahead of you and you're like, how in the world is this person ahead of me in this space? And so I'm always interested when somebody does peel off, when they finally do kind of peel off for a little bit and say, let me try something. Let me try something different. For you, was that reason to go in that entrepreneurial space? Was it because you had gained so much knowledge about a certain part of the industry and you felt like, let me be my own boss for a little bit. Let me be my own storyteller. Is that Was that the impetus for it? I wish, but no. Um, so for me, uh, necessity was the mother of that invention. I had been working at Walmart and that ended badly. And I was a little bit of PTSD, frankly, from the whole experience. And I had been talking to other big companies, big, actually a big computer company. And I had gone for the interviews and I remember just feeling much, much what I read about PTSD. I'm not, this is not a victimization at all, but this sense of like, I can't, I can't go back. Like I, I just couldn't go and repeat it. I couldn't, couldn't go back and sort of repeat over and over and not I was out of touch with myself. Maybe that's a better way of stating it. And so I was like, I I can't go back into a machine. I can't go back in to figure out big culture. You know, for me, my learning from the Walmart experience was that culture eats strategy for lunch. <laughs> that it doesn't matter who you are, or how good you are, or even the different individuals, how good they are. If there's not a solid culture that that fits who you are or how you work or your your style or your beliefs, it's not going to work. And and so cultures are really, and I speak it all the time, and this is, you know, 15 years later, and it's still, it is still the number one thing that I probe for because I, look, there's a lot of bright people with a lot of great experience. You can teach things. Culture is something that you can't teach. 
it's something that it's either you're a part of it and you feel like you can envelop yourself in it, or it's just too antithetical to who you are. And it's just always going to feel uncomfortable. It's never going to feel like home. And that was my learning. And because of what was happening, I I backed away and I was like, I'm going to have to go do this on my own. And I was never more terrified in my life because I was the sole provider for the family. I had two boys in private school in Arkansas. We were living in Arkansas. By the way, it was early. It was December of 06, January of 07. So the you know, we, Bear Stearns went down in 07, the dep- like the whole thing was happening. So my, I had a house in Michigan still that I couldn't sell. Certainly wasn't going to sell anytime soon with what was happening in Arkansas. The boys, like I was terrified, terrified of like not being able to support. And I went to it, as I said, as a necessity and just leaned in and leaned into my network and just put myself out, out there of like, I'm just going to go for it. And I'm going to do um, the answer. The answer to every question is going to be yes. What's your question? And I'm just going to say yes. And I'm going to do, I'll figure it out and how to get it done. And that's kind of how it started. Well, it creates some purposeful battle scars in some, you know, in some ways I started my, I was 40 and I started my entrepreneurship the exact same time. It was, you know, I was still in media sales, media, you know, the world was looking like it was going to come to an end. It was like, okay, I'm not going to make any money this year anyway. So let me just go and try. What's the worst case scenario? I can always go back. So they always need good sellers. And so whether it's an event like that, perhaps an event like COVID, which again has been horrible for many people. And in some ways is a moment for many of us to kind of pause and just reflect and go, this is, this is a life-changing moment in some ways to give me a chance to almost maybe slow this plate down a little bit because it always spins and just maybe look around and figure out, gosh, either what's next or where can I, you know, where can I jump from here? I want to jump ahead just for purposes of time to the, to the time at SAP. And so it's so interesting that you're on a plane and you're kind of texting back and forth. And then lo and behold, you kind of get off and the plane and you've got somebody kind of saying, yep, I like it. Let's build this position for you. That must have felt um, pretty empowering in many ways, especially having coming, you know, coming off of that other experience in the past. It, it, it was, I, you know, I mean, look, there was, you know, my kind of scenario was super public and and so in many ways people were afraid to tell and, and I don't think because they were afraid of me but then they're afraid of any sort of publicity attached and so you know I, I had this sense of having now done this for this entrepreneurial thing for five years which is how long I did it that I could do it I could be really successful at it there was a lot of freedom in it I it was it built my self-esteem because I had I was petrified doing it because I so much was riding on it just my family was riding on it this wasn't just me this was my family. And I really needed to prove to myself that I could do it without the benefit of a big company and the big company resources behind me. So there was a there was a lot of great building of self-confidence and self-esteem, but there was always still that like that like that gloomy shadow that was riding over me that was like I, somehow my opportunities were limited. When Bill reached out, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna jump at it because I think this is a gift and opportunity for me to go and go go back in to a big environment in a totally different type of industry. Again, one, I have no experience in. So I, in my consulting, I had done stuff with tech, and but never big, not big tech, not like this. And to go in, but with a culture, because I had five years to kind of get to know the leader. I mean, yeah, it was only, maybe I met him once a year or a couple emails a year. So it's not like I knew him well, but, but he'd had me to the office to meet team members multiple times. And so I could get a feel and a sense of it. And I was like, okay, I had to put my own sort of, PTSD-ish issues aside, be like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and just do it. 
and I'm going to give it my all and I'm going to just try. And, you know, it was a great experience for me and it evolved into, you know, running strategic relationships and CEO summits and basically putting that storytelling notion to work of talking about tech in more layman's terms that was more relatable to a much broader swath of the C-suite than simply the CIO or CTO. And that was very empowering too, because, and again, it kind of harkens back to my engineering days where you, can you understand, I can understand the complexity but can you describe it in a way, in layman's terms, that I, I always used to say when I was at SAP, if I can't explain the basicness of this to my mom, I haven't gotten it down yet. Like my, and nothing with my mom, but she's, she's, you know, she's, she was a stay-at-home mom. She didn't, she didn't, you know, wasn't in the, the work cycle. So that I could explain a complex piece of software to her, kind of what it does at a high level and the benefit to it. That's the goal. Can we do that to simplify what is a very, by nature, complex beast? That simplification became actually not just something that was really my guiding principle there, but was also became the company's principle was that was to drive the simple. Simple was the writing word for us for everything we did on behalf of the ease of use with our customers, but also how we were able to talk about what we did and how we we were making um, the lives of our customers. And then by that, their customer, our customers, customers easier. I want to spend some time talking about your time at Party City uh, with some of the time that we left, but I want to add just one other thing to the to what you just talked about, which is I am a little fascinated in talking to a lot of CMOs or marketers about just these little moments that happen that that change your trajectory. You know, your trajectory to some extent. When I was talking to Fernando Machado, who's over at Activision but was at Burger King at the time, you know, he was saying that he'd worked kind of in a not a warehouse, but kind of along those lines. And somebody came and said, "Hey, we're doing you know something on marketing." And does anybody want to kind of come and sit in? And he was like, "Well, that sounds more interesting than the factory that I'm working in." You know, let me go and look at that. And so, it, again, it's one of those perhaps weird moments. You're on a plane, you're reading this article. Yes, this is a person that you know, but at the same time, it got you excited at the same moment. And then I'm sure he got excited. And yet, then that, that's where it ends up. It's just, it's so amazing sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, I think people have to, I, you know, it's like I've got these kids in college, like, you know, so you're trying to create teachable moments for your kids. And this is one of them. Actually, I've got a son who wants to be in marketing. He's at Emerson in Boston. And I spoke at one of their, they have this club and business and entrepreneurs, et cetera. And one of the trying to give lessons that might be meaningful to like me 25 years ago or something was, you know, you've got to put yourself out there asking questions, being inquisitive, you know, that sponge mentality of like, I don't know what I don't know, but I'm willing to try and asking questions and leaning in and putting yourself out there is the best advice that I could give, you know, a younger person, because it's exactly what you're saying, Sean, which is, I read that article, I could have been like, oh, that's great. And been thinking in my head, but just to send a note with no, I always say that too, don't connect with people, but don't have to have a, an ask of it all the time. Sometimes it's just good to be giving. Hey, I saw this, this was great. I just, you know, would have been great if, you know, in the future, if you could just connect it, I think you've got a great story you could tell. Boom, I, I wasn't suggesting I do it. I was just being supportive and helpful. And that is what kind of brings, comes back to you. So I, I love that piece of advice. Just with best intentions, just put yourself out there and connect. You never know what's going to happen. And it's also sometimes okay to ask. I remember what, you know when I first thought about doing this podcast, I, I went to an Adweek event and I kind of steamrolled every guest that got off the stage and just said, hey, I'm thinking of doing a podcast. And some of them were like, okay. And I asked Casey Herbis, who's the head of Quicken, you know, Quicken Loans at the yeah. time, considered you know really one of the top CMOs. I sent him a note on LinkedIn. I was like, doing this podcast? He's like, okay. He did not know me, didn't have an episode. I had nothing, nothing to show him. But he was like, okay, sounds cool. So again, it's just those weird kind of moments. Let's talk about Party City. This is almost, this basically is our Halloween episode of 
the CMO suite. That tends to be a busy time for you guys, I would guess. A little busy? <laughs> Little yeah, busy. I know this is, it's a podcast and not a video cast, but I've got my 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 Zoom going with my Yorick, my big skeleton and the pot of candy. I'm kind of in front of the pot of candy. Nice, but nice. um yeah, no, Halloween is is our biggest season. It's like our Christmas for most retailers. Um Halloween is it for us, for sure. It's you know, I would say the most people think about us traditionally, though this is one of the things we're trying to change, when they think birthday and they think Halloween. That's typically where we get most of the you know, the, the headspace. What we're trying to do is be more of an everyday brand. You know, balloons are, you know, one of our, our biggest uh, reasons that people come in. And it's, you know, we, we are the world's largest. Most people don't know. At Party City, we're part of Party City Holdings, Inc. So we're the largest manufacturer of balloons in the world. So most of the balloons you buy in like grocery stores or florist shops or whatever, we probably made them. We make about 80% of what we sell in our stores and we wholesale them to all the stores you can think of that have a party aisle in it, some percentage. So the balloons are a big reason and we've really gone big with them since I've been here the last two years. We've made them a focal of every message we have. But we've really been changing up Halloween to be less, I would say, less about kids only and more balanced. And so we own Halloween City. Some people know that. Some people don't. But the Halloween cities that are pop-ups during Halloween, obviously, they're much more adult-geared. And Party City is kind of for everybody during the Halloween season. But we've really kind of gone big with animatronics and we're getting bigger in decor and now we're in accessories. And what's what I love, since this is a little commercial for Halloween, I'll, I'll give a little plug, but we can talk about the journey here in total and why I came, um, is that right now what's been fascinating, we talk about post-COVID, is supply chain. I mean, you can't not hear about supply chain. And so we've got our leader of supply chain who has been working magic. I mean, from having to rent our own ships and our own cargo boxes and then dealing with there's typhoons and then like the hurdles of getting through customs in China and then getting over here and then the trains and the rails and the trucks. It's all the things in the nightmare that you're hearing from every retailer out there. We are not unique. But I think that he got on it and maybe because Halloween, you know, obviously is more important to us than most. And, and maybe the other retailers are so much more focused on ensuring they've got their their year-end holiday stuff. We were very focused on making sure we had stuff now. And so we, look, it's been every day we are watching the trucks and things come in, but we are very lucky that we've got a whole bunch of cargo just came in. They're loading into our stores. By mid next week, we should be really flush with a lot of product again for those people who have been going to stores and seeing empty shelves. So there's been nothing but a series of, of new challenges that have come to us all because of the pandemic and the retail industry. But for Halloween this year, it was one that we hadn't anticipated. We thought this challenge was last Halloween when people couldn't maybe trick or treat and we were inventing trunk or treat and the Halloween parades and the throwing the, the candy from your you know, your car and the, the, we call them the candy shoots where it's like you, from your, you shoot the candy down your a tube. So you don't have to touch it. Like we would thought we were, that was our Creative. like big moment that of innovation. Worst, yeah. Whoever but, in charge of your blockchain, you owe them probably a lot of alcohol post this. So uh, right. God, God bless them. We've got a handful of some minutes left here. That goes so fast. And I, 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 yeah. I wish we had you for a little longer, but it's always great to be able to, and we've been trying to catch you for a couple seasons. So I, and this time of year. So I really, really, really appreciate you making time. Let's talk uh, a bit about with the few minutes that we've got left. What do you wish you knew more about? You know, you've always, it seems like, again, from your background and the time that we've spent talking about this, you've always been a little ahead. You already, you know, you kind of already knew about digital kind of before digital was digital. You're already talking about the fact that you guys have been kind of almost thinking a year ahead of, you know, the next big event. And 
you know, you've expanded out. What do you wish you knew more about? Oh, uh, there's so much that I wish I knew more. I mean, so we are here in the midst of a transformation, um, full transformation, largely digital. So I've got a big component to play in that in partnership with our CIO and operations and supply chain and all the rest. This is, again, there's no, there's no I in team and that is for sure. Um, so so there's certainly all that, there's that kind of that integration component that I'm, I am learning more about every day. But as we think about going out in the future, one of the things that we're as part of our digital transformation, we're redesigning, we're rebuilding our website and you'll see it next year, but it's much more solution oriented rather than skew or buy this one item oriented. It's really about building a solution. And I've been learning a lot about that because it's been kind of a creation. We're talking about building marketplaces to attach, and that's a very big thing. And so trying to become more, more adept in understanding the various types of marketplaces and how consumers like to interact. The first thing that popped in my head when you said that, that I then get to is, I feel like we're getting ahead of the game there, which is good. Like we're, we're in all those things, but you've got these other issues that are are looming, right? So we already know about the, the rules. So first party data is now king because uh, third party party, the cookies were living in a going to live in a cookie world. So trying to be ahead of the, the curve on that cryptocurrency, I, I know some, but is this going to, what do we do then in a retail land? Like there's a, there's so much to be thinking about in terms of that and what that means and, and how it will affect your everyday consumer. Cause that's who we talk to this. We're not dealing, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not at a big bank. I'm not dealing with, you know, people who are trading money and this is like, how will it affect every person who walks in the store? Those are the kinds of things that I think about in terms of technology and sort of what's on the horizon. And, you know, blockchain was something I don't feel like was really a marketing term-ish or it wasn't used in our marketing, right. you know, lexicon three or four years ago. If you go back and listen to a couple of old episodes, I asked that same question of a friend of mine, Dana Paris, I was like, what do, you, what do you wish you knew more about? She said, blockchain. And I was like, Oh yeah. And yeah. Yet, here we are talking about blockchain and here it yeah. was. And so crypto and, and NFTs and all that is, you know, again, just really, really interesting how that whole transactional world, you know, may impact us ultimately. So Julie Hrobsky, Rame, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of CMO Suite. Thanks for hanging out in the CMO Suite. For marketers who want to be in the know, presented by Connectivity Holdings. You're a C level manager. You shouldn't have to know the difference between behavioral or contextual targeting, but your agency should. UConnex provides brands and biddable teams direct access to platforms like the Trade Desk, Google, Amazon, Facebook, OTT, and more. Their US based traders can train your in house team or provide complete transparency with no minimums and CPM based service pricing for true transparency. Something Mighty Hive, The Trade Desk, and Centro simply don't offer. Tired of being the smartest one in the room? Reach out to UConnex today for a free demo. UConnex, the world's leader in true, transparent, biddable media. Season 6 of the CMO Suite is presented by Bid for Media. Bid for Media is the leader in providing biddable media solutions across all forms of media, including traditional, digital, social, experiential, and more. It's like eBay for media. Choices from radio and TV advertising to OTT, trade desk, display advertising, influencer marketing, and more. No sign-up fees, no boring training, no bullshit. Visit them at bidformedia.com. And Winmo. Winmo is one of the leading sales prospecting tools that delivers the information you need to identify opportunities and close more deals with advertisers and agencies. Search brands, agencies, or contacts and leverage Winmo's smart filters to pare down thousands of prospects based on annual revenue, job title, locations, 
mobile occurrence, planning periods, and more. Visit them today at winmo.com. And finally, No Kid Hungry. With Season 6, we'll be completing our 100th episode of the CMO Suite, and we're proud to announce we'll be compiling highlights of our previous guests for a book called CMO Suites, Recipes for Success, with proceeds to benefit the No Kid Hungry organization. Help feed hungry kids by donating today at nokidhungry.org.